Hello and welcome back to episode 9 of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I am your host, Joe Robinson. And I'm joined as ever by my venerable co-host, Mr. James Spender. James, how are you? Uh, all the better for being described as venerable. That's a nice word, isn't that, it, Joe? That Thank is a nice you. word. You used it yesterday, and I thought I'll use that on him later. So, I stole yeah. it. Wow. I have to start charging you. Well, I'm yeah. Other than that, uh, actually, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. No. I should be in Nice. Right. I'm a bit yep. sad. This whole COVID debacle does rumble on, and while we should all count our blessings for certain things. I am disappointed to not have gone to Nice to do some cyclist rides and also, more importantly, to be there for the Grand Depart. Mm. So, yeah, such is life. But it did mean that I had a little bit more time at home and I've managed to put those little rubber bumpers on the corner of my bed because it's got very low slung bed frame. Right, yeah. So the sort of, sort of bumpers that stop two-year-olds knocking their eyes out on coffee tables. And now it's going to stop me from nailing my shins, which at the moment feel a little bit like the spine of a dying cat they've got quite a lot of ridges in there so swings and roundabouts but i'd like to be in nice same here actually i was meant i was planning on being in nice for the grand part as well uh, to cover some good tech stories and just some general general stuff for the cyclist.uk the podcast um but the quarantine rules mean that we just really couldn't go from the uk Plus, they've cut down on the amount of journalists actually allowed at the Tour de France. So getting accreditation yeah. for the race and getting within a country mile of anything important was impossible. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen unless you work for a French television broadcaster. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's a bit of a crying shame because we got some lovely bits from last year's Grand Depart in Brussels. Some great tech stories, some great features. Um, but yeah. it's, it's understandable. This is life. Um, and it's... It's just amazing that we have a Tour de France, isn't it, James? It is. Um, we say we have a Tour de France. We have one at this moment at this, in time. At this very moment, as we record. Wednesday the 26th. We might have to re-record this whole episode if that doesn't happen. Who knows? It probably, it probably will. I think France will do a lot of things, but one of the things it won't do is cancel its biggest, most celebrated sports event, it, especially not the second time around. I, I, I think the likes of Christian Prudhomme so would move a to make sure that the Tour de France happens. Yeah, I've, absolutely. It's too big of an event that they will, they yeah. will, it will happen. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whether so, you, whether you, know, you agree with that or not, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah, whether whether you're whether you're Van Morrison saying that everyone should pile back into the gigs so that and and that's the uh, the science around COVID is a pseudoscience but, and the music industry needs to start uh, turning itself back on Van again. Van Morrison is just salty because he signed over the rights to Brown Eyed Girl, all the writing and uh, royalty rights, when he was, I think he was 16 when he wrote the song. So he's never yeah. actually earned a penny off of his most successful song ever. So he's just a bitter old man now. <laughs> <laughs> he's still... He's in, he's, in the, he's in the league of Morrissey, isn't he? Of people you should kind of watch out for being a fan of. And the fact that he cited Andrew Lloyd, Andrew Lloyd Webber as his one comrade in arms in the pursuit to get music back on <laughs> back into <laughs> back into stadia and concert halls and stuff, um, you know, speaks Ironic- for himself. Ironically, go. Andrew Lloyd Webber yes. also wrote "Close Every Door to Me," didn't he? From Jay Z, which <laughs> yes. it's going to happen when you let people back into theatres prematurely. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, well, there we go. But actually, I'll tell you what, there is some good music news, and that is the one and only Simon Cowell has been back on his bike this Excellent. week, according to the Daily Mirror, which is obviously a news outlet to be trusted, mm. uh, because he fell off. He fell off what was decried to be an e-bike. It wasn't, though. In, no, yeah. Instantly destroying all e-bike sales across the globe until someone pointed out that was not an e-bike. It was uh, an e-motorbike. A normal e-bike has a 250 to about 400 watt motor, right? This type of bike is called a cab recon. Comes from the states. Costs twenty thousand bucks. It's got a twenty thousand watt <laughs> engine in it uh, or motor, and it can do sixty miles an hour. And according to the literature, it can um, jump any jump from the bottom of the jump. It doesn't even need a run up. It can, it so can anyway, jump any jump. <laughs> He can jump, he can jump. So Cal, Cal was messing around in his Malibu home on this thing and obviously couldn't control it and it crushed him nearly to death and he had to have three, um, he, had, he broke three parts of his spine, I think. He had to have a, a rod 
shoved up it, which could be shoved. Was it Rod Stewart? <laughs> it was Rod, yeah, it was Rod Stewart. And I'm not sure uh, what the entry point was either, but it's now Rod Stewart's firmly in the back of Simon Cowell, and Simon Cowell is firmly back in the riding seat of his um, his e-bike. And you'll notice this time it is actually an e-bike, not an e-motorbike. That's so that's nice, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I wonder if Simon Cowell also wears high-waisted bib shorts, like he does <laughs> jeans. Do you reckon he does that? <laughs> I think so. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. And do you reckon he, he wears platform cycling shoes? Just to make himself look taller on the bike. Yeah, like yeah. Cuban Hill Juros or yeah. <laughs> specially made. And I've, and I've often thought that a little bit, he's a bit like Miguel Indurain. Do you? He does so have that in, look in, to him, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, it's not just the short black hair, but Indurain, for all of his massiveness, did have quite slopey shoulders. So he wasn't super broad, even though he's an 80 kilo, six foot plus bloke. So he's kind of relatively aero. And Cow has the same thing. Cow's shoulders are very slopey. So he's like a kind of torpedo. And ironically, both of them have the ability to spot a burgeoning boy band in their embracing. Em- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. We could go on with the similarities, but we should probably crack on with the episode. Let's get on Tell with me. the episode. So the Tour de France is going to start on Saturday the 29th of August, potentially it might, I don't know, who knows. But we're going to do a little bit of an alternative preview to it. Um, we're not going to bore you of what other cycling podcasts and media outlets do with the same old facts. We're just going to give you something a little bit different, a little bit of tip of who you should be watching, what bikes are going to be there, and why you should get excited. But before that, we're going to do what we usually do right now. I think we finally made it work. We didn't mess up the introduction of that jingle. Yeah. So we'll start as we mean to go on. We'll go straight in. We'll say, Joseph Robinson, what stuff do you like? What's happened in your world over the last fortnight? So I've been riding a lot less, actually, um, for a few reasons. My ongoing house purchase that completes this week. Um, really? I'm back to playing football, etc., etc. So I haven't been riding as much during lockdown. But one thing I did notice during lockdown period is that and I think a lot of people have said this I've had struggles with sleep yeah um I've, my sleep has been irregular it's I've been waking up during the night I've not been not been able to get to sleep waking up earlier um and that does affect your performance on the bike or in, in any type of sort of exercise it's, it does. it's one of the biggest things that people sort of ignore is how good the quality of sleep can affect you um so what i've done to counteract that is i downloaded an app called calm it's on all good smartphones um there's a series of programs on it that help designed to help with stuff like anxiety uh there's sort of stretching programs but what i use it for is there's a a part of it called soundscapes where they just have sort of like white noises and ambient noises for you to get asleep to Um, and i've been using the train sound which is the sound of a train just running over tracks (laughs) every night to get me to sleep nice. and it's working and i'm obviously i sleep a lot better at the moment so um that's what i really like at the moment well i'm glad i'm glad to hear that people will be listening to this and thinking like yeah so there we go there's the uh, little piece of calm app sponsorship but i tell you no it's not sponsorship it's genuinely something no they they do loads likes. of stuff with people like lebron james so why would they bother themselves with me yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 exactly but no, no, I, I hear you on the sleep thing. I, I just feel like I can't sleep. It's the irregularity of sleep. Mm. I can go to sleep super easily. I do wake up at all kinds of strange times. But, you know, such is life. I'm glad to glad to hear you're playing footy, though, mate. And I did see a picture of your new football boots. Thank you. Very, very white, very tidy. Oh, white. Very, yeah, very, if you're not good at football, you're getting hacked because you make it a case for yourself that you're good wearing boots like that. Well, I'm not very good at football, so I look forward <laughs> to being hacked. Yeah, it's a bit like Greg Van Avermaet wearing a gold helmet. You're like, mate, you mark yourself out wearing that. And at what point do you stop wearing a gold helmet? Next Olympics or just forever? Yeah, once you've lost it. When, when you're no longer defending champion, you have to give it up. That's a weird concept, though, being a defending champion of an Olympic medal. No, I, I'm, I'm fully... I don't think that there's... I don't think that Van Avermaet has enough goals. Really? Yeah, but that's that's for another conversation. James, what's something that you like? Something I like. Uh, I've got a new bike this week, which is also always just brilliant. Test bike? Swift. Test bike? Yeah, yeah, yeah test bike. Uh, Swift Race Fox. Swift is a um, relatively small, like, medium-sized company, mm. now based technically in Brazil, um, if anyone wanted to know. 
but uh, it's 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 basically an aero road bike that does all of the aero road bike things: hidden cables, um, sculpted frame, funny tube shapes. Da da da. Honestly, it hasn't actually seen a wind tunnel. It just borrows frame tube shapes from the time trial bike, which right. has seen a wind tunnel. But it's super fast, man. I've knocked out three or four PBs, but like good ones, not just like the weird random PBs that you get on Strava, but like Targeted the ones, ones that. Yeah, the ones that I remember. I'm like, I'm on this climb, and that's a, that's the thing I'll check when I get back. So I've done a, a decent time on the climb, a really good time on the descent, and there's this very long 5k stretch back into town. And if you hit all the lights. Then you can get some serious, and and that was a that was a real choice PB, and what I like about it is it does look flash, it gets mm. the comments, but and you know not to be sniffed at six thousand three hundred pounds that is a lot of money, but if you compare it to the bikes that we've been talking about, but what's recently, that spec with? That's Durace. That's a Durace top D- spec. DIT. Uh, yes, DIT. Um, oh, it's not too bad. That's not bad yeah. for an aero race bike with DIT. I guess carbon yeah. rims. Yeah, yeah. Disc brakes, fifty mil deep carbon wheels. How much are you talking if you're buying a specialised SL7, the tarmac? Lots. Eight grand, nine grand, ten grand. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's a it's a bit of a bargain there. Um, and and you're not going to see many of them if you bought one. No. You, you're no. not going to be bumping into the Swift Race Fox Owner Club. No, uh, no, no, no. They're not. They're not. They're not rallying <laughs> through the Essex countryside on mass and stopping at the biker cafes. Um, I tell you what, you're also you're not going to see. That bike that you sent me this week, that deserves a special mention. Well, yeah. So, listener, I was doing that thing where I have a few beers and browse on eBay uh, in the in the late hours. Um, and on eBay, I saw a alloy giant TCR frame set in full T-Mobile livery, Whoa. circa 0405, upsell for the David Dickinson real deal price of £150. <laughs> now... I couldn't believe my eyes. I thought there must be something wrong with this. So I, consult- I consulted my elders on the purchase. James, that's you. Yes, I sent you. Um, and I, I asked a few other friends, whether, you know, is this a real deal frame? Should I ask, be asking them any questions? In my hesitation, I lost out. Someone else bought it. Oh, mate. Because I was too conservative. I wanted to make sure that I was buying, firstly, an actual a, a, a bike was going to turn up. And not a coffee table. Um, no. <laughs> and I was, you know, 150 quid is, you know, it's not a massive purchase. It's not the, you know, if it turns up and there's some dinks in the frame, you could probably get by with it. But I should have, I should have committed because it would have been an amazing frame to have in terms of for winter riding or just for Sunday, Sunday best. Oh, it was a cracking frame. It was a lovely frame, isn't it, James? Yeah, yeah. It had, looked to be in really good condition. I love those bikes from those eras. You know, late nineties, early two thousands, where they still have really choice paint, and you build them up with new spec parts. And to me, it just looks. We saw someone do a similar thing, didn't we, uh, with a giant Propel, which actually is a new bike, but they, they got it painted, painted. Yeah, yeah, pink and black like the Telecom colours. And oh, we we've so actually good. said this. How good would it be if some bike brands remanufactured bikes? Yes, in the old colourways. So yeah. If they if they brought back out if Eddie Merckx released a bike that was in the Motorola team colours, yeah, or absolutely, I, I think there'd be a market for that. Cannondale did get, come really close once at the Ruler Classic. Sorry, we shouldn't mention the R word. <laughs> uh, no, Ruler Classic is sad. It'll be a sad loss to the calendar this year. Actually, I'm gutted mm. that's not happening. Um, yeah, the Seiko bike that was a one-off, but they did the Mario Cipollini red Seiko bike with the yellow Cannondale letters, the Chinelli altar stem which was huge with which you had the playing card with the naked model on it <laughs> and the spinnergy wheels the very same sort of bike that you know was the one that chippo was riding when he's in the middle of the peloton smoking a fag in that classic picture so yeah i'm i'm by i'm all over those there's a top tip anyone listening any of those bike manufacturers bringing stuff out now just go back to the classics people love that stuff and they colnago yeah. if colnago yeah. started bringing about orange multeni bikes and oh yeah um, I know Specialized have done a few Mapai collections, despite Mapai not riding. Yeah. I did, they don't yeah. think they rode special, but if Colnago brought out sort of some cuboid Mapai C64s, oh, yeah. actually, I think they may have, but anyway. Colnago's definitely dabbled double with the Mapai, for sure. Do it, do yeah. it. Um, you've also got a good training tip that you want to relay to the listener, don't you, James? 
Well, I mean, you might be able to see it right this second because I am sitting here with my ill-advised shirt off. <laughs> sort of weirdly warm, considering <laughs> I'm quite a sweaty man. Um, and as a piece that we we're writing for Cyclist Magazine, I was looking at sweat rates and such. And I was thinking it's really interesting. has been really hot, not at the moment, but it has been. Really interesting to work out at least uh, how how much you should be drinking, you know, hour to hour on a bike. Really easy, simple thing to do. Do a sweat test. Stand on the scales before you go out. Mm. Stand on the scales when you come back in. If you've drunk any water, one milliliter of, of liquid is basically one gram. So subtract that off the difference between your weigh-in and your weigh-out weights. And that is how much you are sweating uh, in that time period. And then you can work it out for per hour. And so then you can start right. thinking, okay, I've got two bead-ons. They're going to add up to a liter. I'm sweating a liter. I want to be drinking two bead-ons an hour. Up to you know an hour or two of exercise, you can get away with not really drinking anything. Some people hardly drink at all, period. Mate, myself being one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. And you you will swear by just going out with... Being a camel. You know, you, you, yeah, yeah, your top cap. That little <laughs> little little bit on the five mil bolt on your top cap. Just feel that. Oh, yeah, I'm done now. Yeah, that's lovely. And a coffee. But the rest of us, sweaty people, we sweat a lot. So my, I sweat around about one and a half litres an hour wow. when I'm going at it. And you can sweat. People can sweat loads more than that. So working that out and you factor in the sodium, I'm not going to bore you with the details in your study, but your average person probably wants to be ingesting over a two-hour ride their literage in the sweat loss, but also 1.7 to 2.9 grams of salt per hour, which is quite a lot when you think about it. That is quite a bit. And we do know that we all love salt, and the government's constantly telling us not to have very much. So I thought that was quite a nice little piece of, you know... Sneaking it in through the back door. Put more mould in your diet. Yeah. I've actually got a bit of a training tip for you as well, James. Yeah. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm back at football. Yep. Uh, which means that I'm running again. So, and I think, I hate running. I despise it. I think it's a sadist and a heretic. <laughs> um, but it's become a necessary evil because you have to run around the football pitch. So I've gone back out and I've started doing 5K runs. been doing hill sprints, doing some stuff. And I've got fitter. I'm, I'm, I've got fitter on the football pitch. My 5K is getting quicker. But what I have noticed is that I'm starting to tick off some quite big PBs on the bike. Nice. Um, and it puts proof to the fact that running can certainly improve your cycling. And, you know, I haven't been riding as much as I did earlier in lockdown, but I'm certainly quicker now where I've been running, doing hill sprints, doing some explosive stuff down yep. on the field near my house. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a particular climb near me, uh, which is 600 meters at 11 percent, uh, and I took 35 seconds off of my PB. Wow! On it the other day. That's incredible. yeah. I and I and I noticed I was I felt more explosive, and I put well, that down to the sprint training I've been yeah. doing for football. Well, definitely, there's definitely something in that. Um, I recently got a different uh, multi-sport watch, different latest Garmin to test the Fenix Six. It's got a heart rate monitor on it. All of my previous ones haven't. And I reckon it's relatively accurate. When I go out on a ride, on a ride, I'll be feeling like I'm pushing myself pretty hard. Like when I was talking about with that Swift getting those PBs, mm. I'm thinking I'm going hard. My top heart rate is probably about 150 to 155. And my cruising fast speed heart rate is about 145. When I'm running, because I did a little bit of running as well this week, if I'm sprinting, it can go up to 180 plus. About 181 was my wow. peak. okay. And I think that's the difference between the type of fitness. It's very difficult, I feel, to push myself to that upper limit on a bike because I back off because you can just keep rolling, can't you? Mm. So maybe that's partly it is you're just really pushing those revs on your engine. I'm able to to hit the threshold. Yeah, I think it might be the case. Yeah, definitely. Um, And before we go on to the bulk of the episode, uh, we've both got something that we've both got into recently, which is Shandy's. Shandy's. That yeah. was very well timed as well. That wasn't actually rehearsed. <laughs> it's true. Shandies. Just love them. That's all. Yeah. Just love them. I bit, mean, a bit of lemonade in your lager. Yeah. And you can really, you can pimp up even the worst lager. You know, I'll take a Foster's top. That's a good, crisp drink. And I hate Foster's. <laughs> Stella, though. Stella, I mean, as a base liquor. Stella with some Britvic, but the um right. pub, the tap pub tap Britvic, you know, like yeah, you si- always say, and the, the syrupy number. 
1664 for me, James. But uh, oh, yeah. let's get on to our Tour de France preview, eh? Let's do it. So the Tour de France starts this Saturday. Uh, you may be listening to this and it may have already started. It may have already finished because of <laughs> COVID. So it may not have started. We're, this is... You know, this is like recording a podcast on election night before the election results have come in. It's hard. Uh, but, James, you're going to give us some of the top-line stats, the scores and the doors for this tour that could or could not happen. Go uh, ahead. That's right. So one thing that isn't going to change if it happens is what is supposed to be the length. So it's going to be 3,470 kilometres, about average in recent years. The Grand Depart, as we said, is going to be in Nice. That's a 156k outing, which is pretty big nice, for. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Yeah, exactly. They, yeah. you know, they, they, you know, they're only allowed to eat those biscuits. Yes. Because it's sponsored by Nice, so they're only allowed to have those biscuits. So you see a lot of those wrappers, and a lot of those biscuits going into mouths during that 156k, and a lot of dryness, I think. <laughs> uh, the longest stage is going to be stage 12, 218 kilometers, uh, from Savigny to Saran. Child's play, um, really, isn't it, compared to my child... 270k in yeah, the lockdown? in the middle but of lockdown, anyway. unsupported, <laughs> no Nice biscuits. Shorter stage, stage 20, we'll come back to the stage 20 because it could be a cracker. 36k, uh, time trial, uh, La Planche de Belleville, which I love that name because it basically means the board of beautiful girls. So I kind of imagine like a kind of boardroom of, <laughs> of, C- of multiple CEOs from the hitting companies all around the world. But I think board is more like plateau in... in uh, yeah, in or the... flank. Yeah, like plank in the old French speak. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, that's pretty much um, you know, the headline news. Yeah, and, and uh, the other big headline is that the mountains come early. They stage do, oh two. yes, yeah. So stage two takes place from Nice to see you, to see you nice, uh, finishes in nice, and it features, but it features two mountains, the Col de la Colomar, and What's the Col de Torini, uh, which is famously part of the Monte Carlo Grand, Grand Prix of the rally, isn't it, James? Yeah, yeah. So it's a stage on the Monte Carlo rally, and mm. they call it um, the the Night of the Long Knives, dun, 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 <laughs> which sounds pretty um, rowdy. Uh, but, but basically, it's because these cars go piling up this unlit pass with their high beams on, which look like, 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 like knives slicing through the air. And I thought, do you reckon that could work with the Tour de France if you just had... A night 16, stage. A night stage with, with headlights on Get bikes. everyone a set of exposure lights and then... Yeah. Other lights are available, but I think exposures are probably some of the highest rated. Could that work? Would, would it just look... I don't know. Would it be, just be impossible to film? It wouldn't or... be a very good television spectacle because you'd just see loads of headlights. I don't think it would look great on television. But I would like... I think it would be good one year for them to do sort of like a 12-hour stage that starts at dusk. Yep. And ends at like uh, starts at dawn, ends at dusk. Sorry. So, but, do you not reckon it could look a little bit like the Blair Witch Project? Never seen it. Have you not? Okay, Cloverfield. Yeah. Then one of those shaky, you know, this, this, the shaky, the handy cam, handheld camera. Um, yeah, film. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dark, but with just the really like kind of rubbish light shone on the subject matter. Just the occasional. All you can see occasionally is Nils Pollitt's massive shiny white teeth <laughs> yeah. leading the way. Yeah, and then uh, and, pe- and and people like uh, the f- Mr. Mr. Fragile Pino just kind of going <laughs> <laughs> quivering by the by the rock face, just in terror so as the Mavic service course motorcycle shines a massive light in his eyes and tries to film him. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I think it could work. But anyway, um, you were going to tell me before we started about who I should bet on. And I said, wait until we actually crack into the episode because uh, I'm not really a betting man. But you are. And you've got some I'm a big, hot tips. I'm apparently. a big betting man. I am a big betting man. And I've, uh, I'm actually up on the bookies Ooh. this season. Don't get conceited. Don't. I won't tell them because they'll ban me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Although I did lose some money on the Champions League final at the weekend. But less said about that, the better. Um, so I've been having a little look at the odds in the, for the Tour de France and a few different options, not just outright winner. Um, and I've got some top tips for you, James, and yep. for you, listener. Uh, my first top tip is Mitchelton Scott's Adam Yates. Ooh. So he is heading off to Team Ineos in the start of the 2021 season. So he's ending his long, long career with the Australian World Tour team this season 
and he's doing that with a final hurrah at this year's Tour de France. But he's not heading for general classification. He's going, he's already admitted to hunt stages. And I think in doing that, he is a very good shout for the polka dot jersey. Oh. Now, we know that, that like, the Lancastrian man is a very good climber, very punchy. And I do back him to win one, maybe even two summit finishes at this tour, depending on how the general classification guys ride. But at the moment, you can get him for 18-1 to 1 with Sky Bet for the polka dot jersey. And I think that's pretty good pricing, considering that he's full favourite behind Bardet, Bernal and Alaphilippe for that jersey. Um, I think he's worth a couple of quid. Uh, my next big sort of tip for you, James, is the winner of stage one. So the first stage is still quite a hilly day yeah. around the foothills of Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, it should be one for the fast men, for the sprinters. But I do doubt the ability of some of the out-and-out fast men to get to the finish. Plus, besides sort of Caleb Ewan, Alia Viviani and Sam Bennett, the field isn't that stacked of out-and-out sprinters. But there's one man that's been catching my eye recently, and that's the newly crowned Italian national champion, Giancomo Nizzolo of Team NTT. Mm-hmm. He's in very good form, just won the Italian championships, as I said. He came fifth at uh, Milan San Remo as well. Um, and I saw him at 14s with Betfred. Um, and I think that's worth at least an each way pet, bet there. Um, and my last big tip for you, dear listener, is. And this is also available each way because it's for the outright winner. So if you was to put on a bet each way, you get a quarter of the odds for him finishing on the podium. And that would be for Nairo, Nairo Man Quintana. Um, he's 28 to 1 at the moment with Sky Bet for the yellow jersey, which I think is a really great price for a man who's consistently finished on the podium of Grand Tours. A lot of people say he's dead and buried and finished, but don't believe the hype. He is a quality rider. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if he sort of found himself on the podium come Paris yeah or wherever the race finishes because the race might not reach Paris so I mean this this is a thing isn't it uh commentators far a better versed in the sport than myself have said this already which is this could be a tour for the old hands even though Nairo is what he's 30 so it's not exactly old old he's experienced like he's 70 (laughs) he (laughs) he looks like he should have retired and he's be watching his great grandson or granddaughter competing, but he uh, he is yeah he's he's part of the older guard. He's experienced, and maybe the experience will tell out because as much as you're sitting on Zwift or your turbo trainer, or maybe you managed to get out during lockdown, there's not been the racing, there's not been the race craft to be able to be practiced. These other older older riders have got that stacked up in their experience banks, so they might be able to put, draw on that to put out surprise results. And a little side note on Nairo Quintana. Um, there's currently a Twitter page in dedication to a great man himself called Nairo in Green. Oh, uh, nice. Which it's, um, it's a homage to where Nairo Quintana wore the sprinter's jersey at last year's Vuelta Espana and how the truly enlightened among us realised that Nairo Quintana is the best rider of his generation. It's very funny. Check it out, uh, Nairo <laughs> and Green. It's just, it's, it's a bit crazy. You might not get everything that they post, but you'll laugh at least once. <laughs> right, I'll go check that out. So, um, of you know, of the stages that we hope will happen, which is all of them, twenty-one, culminating in Paris, as per. What are you most looking forward to? Where do you think the decisive moments will come from, and what stage are you just most looking forward to seeing? Period. So, if I if I'm new to the sport and I want to get the best bang for my buck, or I haven't got the time to dedicate 21 days consecutive of my life to watching the tour, one day that I will pick out for the for the listener and for the viewer, because I think it's going to be quite big for the general classification, is stage 13, and stage 13 goes to Puy Marie, which is a climb in the Massif Central, starting in Chatel Guyon. Um, if you look at the stage profile, it looks fairly routine. There's four categorised four categorised climbs. None of them are the horse category um, super categorised climbs. It's only 191 kilometres, and none of the climbs go under over 1600 metres of elevation. So that sounds pretty simple, doesn't it, James? Mm-hmm. It's pretty routine for yep. a, a, a Grand Tour stage. 
but it doesn't tell the whole story. Actually, it's the toughest day at this year's tour, with a mighty 4,400 metres of vertical elevation in that one day. Um, and it finishes on an excellent double punch finish of, firstly, they climb the Col de Neron, which is a 3.8 kilometre climb at 9%, very steep, very narrow. And then there's a bit of a flat plateau, a two kilometre descent, and then immediately into the Puy Marie, which is a five and a half kilometre climb at 8%. But that's not told the whole story because the last two kilometres are at 12%. And I think that this sort of punchy, unknown finish is going to be very interesting in terms of general classification and your stage hunters looking to sort of win and take time. Um, the Puy Marie has been used previously in the Tour de France, but very sparingly because it's in the Massif Central, James. Mm-hmm. Um, Massif Central is in the very middle of France, basically, a little bit to the south of the middle. Um, and it's a great place to ride your bike, but it's often lo- overlooked by the Tour, not because they don't like the roads, but logistically it's actually a nightmare for the race. There are, mm-hmm. no, there are not enough hotels, there are not enough facilities. It's quite remote compared to the Alps and the Pyrenees. Um, so it's great to see that the races decided to, to go there uh, for the first time. I think the Puy Marie was last used in 2011, but it was only in sort of the transition of the stage, whereas this is the finale. And I expect fireworks. Yeah, I think it's a good stage for someone like Julian Alaphilippe, Sergio Higuita, two very punchy climbers. But I can also see some GC men taking time, getting caught out maybe on that first ascent getting caught out on the plateau and the descent before and then having to try and salvage some time on that last mm. punchy ride to the finish. So, yeah, stage 13, that's one that I'd get on series record Unlucky. on the Sky or Virgin box. Unlucky for some as Unlucky well. Unlucky for some. Unlucky, Unlucky for, for some. some. If you're an and you, James? Caller. Well, I mean, you point out there it's going to the Massive Central. So this is really a, a Tour de France for the climbers and therefore a kind of Tour de France for a French champion. That's what they're hoping for. That's what they hope for every year. It visits every single mountain range in France, major mm. mountain range, which has uh, not happened for a long time. And as we mentioned, the last stage before the procession into Paris is a time trial, 36K, with an uphill finish up La Planche de Belfield. And that could really be telling. So that's 5.9K, 8.5% finish, you know, that's going to be, who knows how that could separate a top three, depending on how close everyone is coming into that. It's certainly not going to be a time trial. It's going to be won by a classic time trialist, to put it that way, or it'd yeah. be unlikely. So that's going to be one to watch out for, potentially, stage 20. And that's, and that's a climb that the Tour has really favoured in the last few years. It has, yeah, it last visited year. Quite, visited last year, visited yep. a few times in the past. So a lot of the, the riders in that peloton will know that climb. Yeah. Particularly some of the French guys, Thibaut Pino trains on that climb a hell of a lot. Mm. He actually doesn't live too far away. So some of the some of the GC guys, people like Pino, will know that climb like the back of their hand, which yeah. could be quite really, big the yeah. day before Paris. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that could be really, that could be super exciting. But in terms of just a stage, I'm looking forward to stage 18 goes from uh, Mirabel to La Roche sur Front. It's a bit like your the stage that you picked out, Joe. Stage 13. It's a Herculean. To undertaking 175k but 4,000 over 4,000 meters of climbing and the penultimate climb so this is going to be quite cool uh, is the plateau uh, de Glier which is 5k 12% that is pretty steep doesn't mm. tell the whole story it's also got some stretches of gravel there's a 2k stretch of gravel going up over the top but on route to the top there's a couple of little parts of 20% and some really, it's a really bad surface all the way up. They call so it... So this, this was only debuted in 2018. This oh, yeah. Okay. So it's only the that. second time that this... So it was used in 2018, but yeah. it was used quite early towards the stage. So as you said, there's the gravel at the top. There's a little um, memorial to the Second World War because mm-hmm. uh, I think there was a battle yep. on, the, on, the, on its slopes. But it, it didn't have any sort of effect on the race because of how far out it was. But this year, I believe it should have... A, yeah, a lot more effect, right? Absolutely. Again, coming late in the race, um, it's been it's going to be a big day out already, and that comes really close to the end of that stage, last last major climb. Uh, and yes, and it, and it's it's something that if you look at most route profiles in France, you don't get a road at five k plus that actually hits a steady twelve percent. You get a lot of hairpins, so actually it's mm. it's quite unlike a lot of other parts of the Alps. Uh, the French call it the mini zonclum. 
which is Zonkman being the climb by which many others are measured uh, famously in Italy. Um, mm. So yeah, it's super steep and it's got a bit of Paru Bay about it. But I'm looking forward to seeing one particular part on this stage. And it's a little bit of graffiti. Uh, it's on the Corme de Rosalan. And they'll be hitting it. Uh, it'll be in their rear view mirror because they'll be coming up from the Borg San Maurice side. But back in the day in 1996, this is where uh, Johan Brunil, who went on to become one of the most disgraced men in cycling, <laughs> um, he left the road in some really quite spectacular fashion. And I've ridden this stretch, and the Corme de Rosalan is a beautiful, beautiful climb, one of the nicest climbs I've ever done, I think, because it's just a steady 20K at steady 6%. So much time to sit up and just really enjoy it. But halfway down uh, the descent, down into uh, boat from from Beaufort, down to Borg San Maurice, is this thing. So it's, uh, so it's this really tight left-hander, and Brunil hit this at a thousand miles an hour, went somersaulting over his bike, and just disappeared. And you get, there is TV footage of it, and it is just kind of incredible. And there's this brilliant quote from him afterwards because he he somehow got back up. He went over the side of a ravine, got back off on his own, bleeding. He's only wearing a casquette little cotton cap but he managed to somehow find that stuck in a hedge put it back on climb back up got on his bike finished the stage you know he's a bit of a nails guy but i'll read you this quote from his book and it says i flew off the edge of the cliff and i hung in the air feeling motionless weightless stopped in time a hundred feet above the trees and the bushes that clung to the steep jagged incline i had a lot of time to think i thought i rode off a cliff i thought well this is going to be very bad and then last thing he thought was, I'm dead. But as I say, he wasn't, got back up, got on his bike. But it is a, that is a, a savage way to crash. Uh, so anyway, uh, long story short, I shall be looking forward to stage 18. Excellent. That's very good. And as we're looking, you're looking forward to stage 18, I want to let you uh, know about a rider that you should be looking forward to seeing at the Tour de France. Yep. So... British fans will have been split in opinion about the fact that Chris Froome and Garrett Thomas will no longer, will not be at the Tour de France. And for the first time in about a decade, Britain will not have a rider claim, uh, sort of aiming at the general classification. Yeah. So you may be thinking, you know, who should I be cheering for three weeks about Froome or Thomas? Um, you know, you may just still continue to cheer on Team Ineos. Uh, the obvious answers here are people like Julian Alaphilippe, because he has a great goatee and looks like Begbie from uh, Trainspotting. <laughs> uh, uh, Thibaut Pinot, because he's as fragile as a Ming vase. Um, and Tom de Moulin, because he's just incredibly good looking. Um, but the one guy that I'm going to be keeping an eye on over the next three weeks, and I think you should too, is a man called Hugh Carthy. Uh, known to his mates as Hugh Carthy. He's a 26-year-old Lancastrian. Uh, who will be making his Tour de France debut with the Education First Team among a merry band of Colombian pocket rockets. There's Danny Martinez, who recently won the Dauphiné, Rigoberto Aranaran, legend of the sport, looks like Mick Jagger, will so be Colombian president him. one day. So good they named him yeah. twice. Exactly. And Sergio Higuita, who's a really impressive, punchy climber. Uh, sort of, Hugh Carthy will be going there in support of these guys. So he started life off with the Rafa Condor team. Do you remember them, James? I do, yeah. Sadly, Demise. Yeah, the, but yeah remember them. Sadly, Demise, British continental team. Before he moved from Preston in the UK to Pamplona uh, to live the dream. And he, instead of doing what a lot of British riders do, which is go through the sort of track system and then ride for Team Ineos, he went out and sort of rode for Cara Rural pro-continental Spanish team. Um, because thing is about Carthy is he is a bona fide mountain goat yeah so he uh finished 11th at the Giro d'Italia last year uh was really mixing it with some of the best the likes of Nibali Roglic in that last week of racing um and he's just a really cool guy he's so cool that you could keep your ice cubes from melting <laughs> uh he he has a hooped earring yep. he has a really thick Preston accent so he talks like this very slowly and um, I've met him before. He's a really nice lad, uh, and he's really—he's very gangly. He looks like a spider riding a child's bike. Yeah. Um, but he is—he's a, a nails rider. He won't get many opportunities at this tour because, as I said, he'll be supporting uh, the trio of Colombians. Yeah. Uh, within the education first team, but 
don't be surprised when he's absolutely nailing it at the front in the in the big mountain days in the Alps mm. or the Pyrenees or the Massif Central because he is a classy guy. Uh, and one other rider that I think we should all be keeping our eye on, he featured in the magazine recently, actually, and that's Guillaume Massin mm-hmm. from Coffee Disc, the, the small general classification climbing specialist. Um, he was very good at the Critium de Dauphiné, finished third overall, very impressive result. And I think he's got a good chance of the top 10 at the Tour, but why he should be a big fan, why you should be a big fan of him is because he's written books on philosophy. Oh, uh, yeah and has written books about how a cycling peloton can be compared to sort of a microcosm of real life and uh, has used the works of Nietzsche and people like that and used them in the concept of the professional cycling peloton. So he's probably the smartest man in professional cycling. Um, the words of, a real scholar. The, word, the words of Nietzsche. The words of Nietzsche. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nietzsche, Nietzsche is a very niche philosopher. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's all about Nietzsche's will to power, isn't it? So that's possibly, you know, one of the central tenets of any cyclist is their power numbers. And Nietzsche, I think, had a similar, similar idea. But I would say those might be people that might do all right. But there's going to be one team that's going to do all right. And by extension of that, there is going to be one most winningest of all winningest things. And it's going to be a Bianchi Ultra xr4 bicycle because that is pretty much the bike that most of the jumbo team uh jumbo visma will the, be on and they are the, you can't the stop jumbo them win- the jumbo but yeah you can't stop them winning you can't stop them winning at the you moment, can you? yeah i uh, say so we we were talking about this before which bike do we reckon will win the most stages of the tour de france the obvious answer is the tarmac because specialized the spoil sports and only give their riders one bike now yeah and by virtue of having bora hansgrower and peter sagan and quickstep the Koenig Quickstep and Sam Bennett and Julian Fleet. it makes sense that the Tarmac one would win the most stages. In fact, last year, uh, they won 14 uh, Grand Tour stages yeah. specialised. Um, by far and away the most, Bianchi were actually second with eight wins of Jumbo Visma. Um, so I think that's a good shout. The Tarmac will probably be the most winningest bike. Mm-hmm. The Ultra XR4 made by Bianchi as well, James will be up there. Yep. It will also be a last hurrah for rim brakes. Yeah. Because Jumbo Vinsper are one of the rare teams alongside sort of Team Ineos. Ironically, the two big GT teams uh, still only using rim brakes. Yeah. Ineos on their Dogma S12. Funny that, isn't it? You've got the two, big, yeah, two biggest teams and they're both of the Italian brands who really push the kind of like See. quirky shaped bikes in a sea of things that all look like a specialised tarmac. And yeah, both have rim brakes. And I think that I'm probably right in saying that the last two big brands doing their top flagship bikes still in the rim brake form because Trek with them don't most of the Canyon bikes um, uh, where are we um, Cannondale. Cannondale yes exactly they've all just gone just disc whereas mm. Pinarello and Bianchi specifically do both their bikes with rim brake still just disc for the rim brake <laughs> just disc so. for the rim brake exactly free, free uh, the rim but- brake for Another, another bike, actually, that I think could have a quite successful Tour de France, and I think you should keep an eye on, is the Villiers Zero SLR. Uh, now, I say this is because the Astana team and the Total Direct Energy team will be racing on this bike at the Tour de France. Um, and Astana are very good at picking up stage wins. Yep. And I could see that bike doing a few good... Yeah. Doing some bits. And it's a very look good-looking bike as well, except from the uh, internal seat post clamp oh yeah which is sort of just pokes out of the top very view. ugly but hey ho the rest of the bike good looking bike speaking of that if you were going to be riding for a team who would you yeah. who would you want to ride for if you based your decision purely on kit on kit yeah. uh, on the basis that i tan quite well it would be the brown shorts of azure de gel and <laughs> Uh, brown sh- what is it? so it looked like you weren't wearing any shorts or because you need the brown I to think, go brown well I, do, I think it's a glorious kit I think I'd look <laughs> quite good in it and I think anyone who says otherwise is living under a rock alright fair enough um, apart from that yeah. I'd, I do I also really enjoy uh, the pro continental pro team sorry they're no longer pro continental of B&B Hotels Vital Concept they're making their Tour de France debut they're a Breton based team uh, and they claim their jerseys, their green jerseys, but they claim their glass colour 
which they say is the same colour as the sea in Brittany, which I think is beautiful. That's just... It's a quite a nice jersey yeah. colour, actually. What about you, James? Well, I don't know, I don't know how what Rafa would liken EF's pink to. I don't think it's pink-like. It's Maybe it's pink like the farmer's skies over Kent. But anyway... It's, it's, pink, it's pink like the crowd at a Grateful Dead concert, <laughs> I'd say. Well, we'll go with that then. So, uh, it's pink. It's pink like bubblegum. It's hot pink, but I do really like it. I wouldn't necessarily say I can pull it off, but I do love Rafa kit just in general, fits well, whatever. But I think the EF team look really sharp on their bikes, really stand out in the peloton. And it's that thing. I don't know if you do this on kind of like sporties or any kind of race days where you get your stuff ready. And I like to hang up my kit on a, on a hanger outside the wardrobe where I can see it in the morning. And it sounds really cheesy, but it just sort of makes me go, oh, yeah, cool. I'm going to put that on. I'm going to go riding. It's going to be a great day. Mm. That little bit of inspiration. And I reckon if I woke up to seeing the EF kit every morning, I just feel like, yeah, today's going to be a good day. It's going to be really happy. Yeah, I'd be happy. So there's that. And then, like, bikes-wise, there's also some really... Yeah, t- if, you was, yeah. If, you was to, if you was to be in the Tour de France and it was based purely on the team bike, who are you going for? Well, almost, yeah. I was going to say, bikes-wise, the EF guys smash it too. Their Cannondales do look brilliant again because of that pink livery but just in terms of if it's like a performance thing um it's ntt isn't it that are on bmc's yeah. yes they are so just that uh, ntt the bmc uh, team machine is just an absolute beast of a bike love it great all-rounder disc brakes light etc etc um and a bit different it's a little bit different i like it it's a bit different but that's that part of me that thinks that it's not about the bike performance, it's about what the bike looks like, and that's the major thing. So it's got to be mm. a DeRosa, um, as ridden by Cofidis. Um, and they have the SK, which is designed by it, uh, that Italian outfit, what are they called? Um, Pininfarina, that's right. And they, they do like styling of stuff, do Pininfarina. Mm. And they did the, I noticed last time I could take it, that was, they did the Eurostar trains, apparently. I would say the pin Pinafarina is a is a style, and that is what they made the Eurostar. Yeah, it's kind of like I mean, if you had enough, or did the people that made the Derosa SK also make the Eurostar? Mm, not quite. Ugo Derosa didn't weld the Eurostar, unfortunately. But the Eurostar goes three hundred kilometers an hour, That's a so I'm assuming that the SK Derosa goes similar speeds. But no, it's basically like if you if you're a rich enough man, Joe, and you wanted someone to style your new house. You could go to Pininfarina and they could do a private contract and they would style your house inside and out. So they're not building it. So so you would I wouldn't go to Lawrence Lowell and Bowen. He would be too expensive. <laughs> if you could get him, yes, but he'd be too expensive. Pininfarina, a, a, an impoverished second, but they would style out your house so it had little fold-out tables for people to bring you cups of tea and overhead storage. Um, uh, s- sort of clever solutions. Yeah, yeah, and random TV screens that displayed adverts that you didn't want to watch. And and the speed of the house at all times. (laughs) I do love that on Eurostar. It tells you how fast the train's going. And that's what they do on the on the DeRosa SK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How about you, mate? So for so for me, uh, I would ride for Groupama FDJ because they ride the Lapierre Exelius SL seven hundred. that's the bike that Thibaut Pino uses and he's my favourite. Um, it's also a beautifully ugly bike, <laughs> mainly because of the way that the seat, uh, the seat tube, and the top tube do not connect. Yeah. They are they are separate, and I believe that is for compliance and for sort of flex. So they, Would that be correct? So they James? say. Yes. So they yep. say. Um, it's as I said, it's ridden by my the team that always makes my heart flutter, and that is Grupama FDJ. Um, and I've actually ridden that bike. We had it in once for uh, a mm. test. And I rode it around Regent's Park a few times, and it was really good. It was really enjoyable. I only rode it for about 30k, but I had a lot of fun yeah. on it. And I remember thinking, and it was also supplied in the red, white, and blue of Group Armor FTJ. And I remember just feeling a sense of sort of uh, French pride. I wanted to break out into La Marche <laughs> and um, overthrow the monarchy. Yeah, yeah, create your own little mini so, republic in the middle of Regent's Park. But it's a head turner. In terms of if I, if I was to be, if it was. I want to I want to be on that team because I want that bike. But if it, in terms of pure performance, I would ride for the Trek Segafredo team, and I would probably ride exclusively on the Madone 
the added whoosh yes. points because it's just so fast. That is a fast bike. Also, mm-hmm. biggest logo on any bike. You've seen the site? That yeah. I feel like Trek, what they've done with that bike is shoehorn in um, a massive logo through the door of aerodynamics. So they've gone like, how can we put a massive logo on a bike? They're like, ah, we can say it's more aerodynamic to have a massively tall down tube, but actually it just gives us more real estate to write Trek on. And also Trek's great because four-letter word, so you can kind of really make it look punchy on the down tube. But yeah, that's a real good... Trek! Uh... It's better than can. It's better than Cannondale, which the C is often obscured by oh, the, the chain yeah. set, so it just looks like Annandale. 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 <laughs> they should really do something about that. In terms of, yeah, um, so in terms of logos. We're running out of time here, oh, no. James. No. But before we do that, we are, we are running out of time. But before we did that, we wanted to sort of talk about a new concept that's being discussed recently. And that's that we should, the, 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 so there's a young rider's jersey, the white young rider's jersey for the best rider under 25. The issue is, is that in the modern day, all the really good riders are under 25. So Egan Bernal, Pavel Sivakov, Tadej Podokar, uh, Matteo van der Poel, Pavel, I mean, the list is endless. Remco yeah. and van der Poel, they're all under 25 these days, which means that that young rider's jersey is kind of redundant, mm. right? Because they're actually competing for the normal yeah. jerseys. So what we think should be done is what about an old rider's jersey? I love it. Give it to the give it to the granddads of the peloton. Yeah. Best rider over the age of 35. Yeah, well, you say 35. I want it to be from 33 just because I'd like to include uh, Aran Aran. So good they named him twice because I feel like he is an old rider. He's an old old head on yeah. even older shoulders. Maybe they should do it by how old your face yeah. looks. Yeah, in which case, uh, as we've already touched upon, Quintana can go in there because he's 70. And Dan, Dan, Despite being yeah, 30. And Dan yeah. Martin can go in there because he is only 34 but has looks like a man that's seen things. But then weirdly, there's some other riders that are like older, remarkably older than I thought they were. Richie Port is 30, mm. 35. And then weirdly, yeah. I've always Did you know, here's a fun one. Do you, do you want a fun little fact for you? Uh, on, Richie Port is older than Andy Schleck. That's, that's so, the that's same Andy strange. Schleck who won the tour in, what, 2009? Retrospectively, 2010, sorry. And hasn't raced wow. for what seven years because of injury <laughs> yeah richie port is actually older than andy schleck and andy schleck feels like he wow. rode in the same era as bernard Hino. sometimes it's that far gone um but yeah i think an old rider's jersey would be excellent because you'd have yeah you'd give some guys like dan martin richie port nico roach who's 20 oh, 36 yeah, 30. sort of reason yeah, to yeah. ride hard um and obviously the old man of the peloton um Alejandro Valverde at the ripe old age of forty, crazy at this Tour de France. Yeah, and there are there is also like Greipel and Gilbert. They're old guys, thir- mm. thirty-eight years apiece. There's some older, older. There's an older mm. guy coming through. No one's going to touch old Jens. Jens Voigt riding uh, a couple of years ago um, at the age of forty-three. I think oldest Tour de France rider. Yeah, of the modern era, right? But get this, doing a little bit of research. And the oldest rider to have ever participated in the Tour de France was a fellow called uh, Henry um, Parnay, Henri Parnay. Guess how old he was? 45? He was 50. So Henri Parnay was 50 years old. He came in 11th in the 1904 Tour de France, no less. So this is a guy that was born... In 1854, born wow. in the middle 1800s, when most things were invented in the, in the 1850s. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And that was a weird, weird Tour de France because it also was won by the youngest ever winner, which was uh, another Henri, Henri Cornet. So he was 19 years and 11 months old, and he only won it retrospectively. Because it turns out everyone's been cheating in the Tour de France since the since day one, so uh, the f- top four riders in the 1904 Tour de France were all disqualified for cheating, and that was like throwing tacks on the road, pushing competitors off the bike, getting getting, yeah, the, getting on trains, getting Ubers places. Like they they were really really cheating. 
So, uh, yeah. Five-star Uber, Uber XL. Yeah, how strange is that? Cheers. And, and yeah, Maurice Garan, the, the original winner of the Tour de France, he won that one. He was stripped of that as were through. Well, there were 12 riders in total disqualified for cheating that year. Wow. And it got us thinking of some other quirky little facts around the Tour, didn't it? So you found out who the tallest ever rider is to ride the Tour de France. Well, yeah. What do you believe to ride, in at least the modern era? Yeah, we don't know how, you know, they didn't have scales back in the early 1900s. But, uh, yeah, you go down that rabbit hole, don't you, of, like, most thingest of Tour de France. So the tallest rider, Tour de France, um, was uh, Marcel Seberg, six foot six inches. Which is now at Bahrain, McLaren, formerly of Lotto Sudau, the big yeah. German man, often found at the yeah. front of Could the peloton. Have so- um, and he's quite, he's quite a bit taller than the shortest rider. I'm right. Am I right in believing? Uh, yeah, shortest rider, uh, Samuel de Moulin. He still rides. Um, How tall? Oh no, he? sorry, he retired last year actually, didn't he? Um, he was five foot three, rode for AG2R. That's wow. very short. Um, so what? He'd have been on like a fifty centimeter frame. Forty eight. Forty eight. I mean, that's probably like a seventy mil stem, like tiny. He would have been on that bike that. Six 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 fifty yeah. wheels. <laughs> <laughs> but then weirdly, right, you go you start thinking about like just size in general and weight. So tallest ever winner, who do you reckon that was? This is an obvious one. That's our that's our it's our own our very own Indeed. Bradley Wiggins. Well, yeah, good shout. So six six foot three. Through me is quite tall, six foot one. But yeah, we go six foot three. Um, lightest at. Bigger than Miguel Indurain? Uh, no, Big I think Mig. Big Mig was um, six one six two. I think he's, he's he's but yeah, Wiggins is taller than Big Mig. Big Mig heaviest ever wow. winner, they, so they say, eighty kilos. Heaviest ever rider mm. at the tour, Magnus Backstead, ninety five kilos. Doing it, doing it for us big yeah, boys, ninety five kilos. But then, lightest ever winner, Luis Acana, who was a rival to Eddie Merckx, Spanish rider back in the seventies. He won it in nineteen seventy three. He was. 52 kilos which is just Jeez. i mean that's not what's 52 kilos that's that's a hundred weight that's an imperial hundred weight that's absolutely nothing but strangely had the same uh bmi as wiggins because wiggins was wiggins was just so really? thick and light we need to... yeah he was what 68 to 70 kilos when so he they, raced his yeah team, i mean there's a lot of conjecture isn't it but he reckons or they reckon they the great they uh, reckon he was 71 and a half going into the tour and he finished up about 68 because you lose quite a lot of weight during that period so I mean mm. that's yeah it's pretty phenomenal really and didn't didn't you find that the average weight of riders has gone down yeah. since in yeah I stumbled history, across this brilliant um, like web page sorry I can't remember who it's by that's really bad of me I should be able to cite it uh, we can get a link in the bio or something but yeah apparently um Riders have lost on average uh, a five five kilograms lighter since 1990, which is pretty big across the board. So it just really shows where people, not bikes, just getting more aero and stuff, but people just realise where all those gains are, and everyone's at it. You look at like the baggy jerseys and just the width in the shoulders of riders like Ulrich and Armstrong back in those days. They did. Cipollini yeah, could have been lifting weights at the Olympics for Italy, like or boxing. They were massive guys, but they were just like, "Huh, I don't care," because <laughs> everyone's big, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I've got loads yeah. of blood, so I can get over this climb. It's fine. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's. Uh... Um, and my final fact is that at the Tour de France this Saturday, uh, there will be twenty-three riders starting the Tour de France are the same age as me, 26, which makes me feel like I've done it. True, or that there's still time for you to win the oldest rider's jersey. Yeah. That is a good way of looking at things. Thanks for flipping it around. Uh, James, I think that's all we've got time for today Um, because I've got to edit this and get it out before then also moving into my house tomorrow. So um, Hmm. thanks for joining us. Uh, I hope the Tour de France goes ahead. We hope the Tour comes ahead and then in two weeks' time we can talk yeah. about some racing uh, and we're not talking about the race being cancelled because that would be really sad. Um, as ever, subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your uh, podcasts. 
Leave a, a review, positive one, <laughs> that. Much and and all negative reviews uh, are um, taken terribly, but on the chin. Yeah, they're taken terribly, but me and James go into sort of uh, 10 minutes of sort of doubting. I think they're technically called spirals exist. of depression, aren't they? Um, spirals of depression, exactly. And yeah, um, we'll see you again in two weeks' time. And you too. Adieu. Guys. See you later, mate. Bye.